Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Chronicles 36, 5 through 9. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, resigned, re reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Daniel 1, 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of, the God, of his God. This is God's word. So we are about to begin what I'm going to call a bread and butter expository series uh, some of the sermon series that I've been doing while with you have been uh, tailored to the need of the moment or a particular topic. Uh, we haven't done a lot of working through verse by verse. We did do that with the book of Haggai. But uh, this is going to be a work through the entire 12 chapters of the book of Daniel verse by verse. And in it, my goal is to provide information that is going to help you to flourish spiritually. Uh, there will be some moments when we take a break from Daniel to do some other things. I don't even know for sure whether I will get through the book of Daniel in my season with you because I've kind of mapped it out. I think it's going to take 23 Sundays, and I don't know if I have 23 Sundays here with you, but we'll, we'll play that by ear. Uh, for the remainder of our time together, meaning my time uh, here with you, this will be our go-to book that we will be studying verse by verse. In Psalm 1523, we read, a man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. A timely word is a, is a truth that is perfectly suited to the moment it puts life into you or it prepares you for what's coming. The book of Daniel is just such a timely word. And you're going to understand why as we work through this book. I think this is a book that believers all across the world need to understand now more than ever. Now, this morning we're doing an introduction to the book of Daniel. I want to give you some basic information to help you understand what are we dealing with here. And so we're going to look at six different things. The historical context. When was this book written and what is it about? The author. What do we know about him? How is the book structured? What is the arrangement of it? What are the key themes that come through it? There's some criticism associated with the book of Daniel. Some people think it wasn't written by Daniel. How do we answer that? 
And then application, how are we supposed to apply this book? So this morning, we will be kind of getting into some, some details, but I have confidence that you can handle this no problem. So away we go. First, let's talk about the historical context. Where does the book of Daniel fit in Old Testament history? In 1436, and these are all approximate numbers, but these are my best estimate of when they occurred. In 1436, Israel entered the promised land and the period of the judges ensued for almost 400 years. Then in 1050, they had their first king and it began the what's called the United Monarchy in which Israel was all united under one king. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. And that period lasted for about 120 years. In 930, when Solomon died, his son made a tactical mistake. And the empire split in two. And there was the north. And that empire lasted a little over 200 years before Assyria came, conquered them, and they were dispersed all over the, the ancient world. And the southern kingdom lasted for 344 years. And Daniel, and I think you're seeing a chart up there, or you should be seeing a chart up there, gives you the overview of the different things that we're looking at, where you see this period of the judges, then the United Kingdom, then the north and the south, and you see Daniel very near the end of this southern empire. If you were to think of American history, it might help you to compare. In 1607, that was the settlement of uh, Johnstown, which was the first settlement. Uh, Plymouth was in 1620. So we had a period of time in which people were dwelling in the land, but we did not become a nation until 1776. Then in 1861, almost 100 years later, we had a civil war, or what I've come to understand from moving to Memphis is the War of Northern Aggression. And uh, so that civil war ensued, but as it worked out in our country, we got back together. That didn't happen in Israel, and so they were a divided kingdom. We now arrive at 2022 where we have something of an uncertain future, and that was the case at the time of Daniel. Daniel grew up in the south. His life and his ministry punctuate the very end of Israel's first round in the promised land. In other words, Daniel is taken to Babylon at the time when Israel in the land, it's really just Judah in the south, has about 20 years left on the clock. We looked at the book of Haggai, that was a do-over when Israel came back to the land about 70 years later. But here Daniel is actually talking to a people both at the end and in an interim, how to survive. And so that's why I'm excited for us to be able to look at the book of Daniel. Let's zoom in for a closer look. Let's look at the last five kings of Judah. Josiah, you may remember from the Old Testament, is the king who was rescued. He was the only member of the royal family who was rescued. And he became king at the age of eight years old. How would you like your eight-year-old to be in charge of the empire? I know they already think they are, but anyway. Uh, He became king. And he led an incredible return to God. Uh, He rediscovered the book of the law. And although Josiah had an amazing heart for God, 
the general trend was not changed and the future for Israel remained grim. Here's what 2 Kings tells us after Josiah's death. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did anyone like him arise after him. In other words, he was one of a kind. He was right there with David. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, a previous king, had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. Israel was the north that had been removed 150 years before. And I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. Despite Josiah's unparalleled passion for God, their destiny, the destiny of the nation, was unchanged. And we can look back now in history, they didn't realize that when Josiah died, the countdown was already in play. They had 23 years left until Jerusalem would be reduced to rubble. Josiah had three sons, all of whom became king. Jehoiaz, uh, Jehoiahaz, who was the oldest, he only reigned three months. Jehoiakim, who was the middle son, he reigned 11 years. Then his son reigned for three months. And then his younger brother, Zedekiah, reigned for 11 years. All four of them, all four of the sons of Josiah were utter disasters. And Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 586 B.C. Jehoiakim, who is this middle son of Josiah, assumed the throne in 609 B.C. after a short three-month reign by his older brother Jehoiahaz. And the passage that Val read said, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. It was his God, but he did evil in his sight. His, his reign lasted 11 years until uh, 598 B.C. Second Chronicles, the passage, one of the passages Val read, says this, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. Now that was 609 B.C. Hang on to that date, all right? And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, did evil, and he was eventually taken to Babylon, and that occurred in 597 B.C. So here's Jehoiakim, middle son of Josiah, who goes on to the throne in 609 and is eventually deported to Babylon in 597 B.C. But in year three of his reign, which would be 605 B.C., something very significant happened. And this is what we read about in the other passage that Val read. In the third year, that's 605 B.C., of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So Jehoiakim, three years into his reign, has an encounter with Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, that turns out badly. And, among other things, a young man by the name of Daniel is taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. What do we know about this man, Daniel? Well, in 
Daniel 1, 3, and 4, we read this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now I'll talk some more about this next week, but what I want you to see is that Daniel is one of this group that was taken to Babylon in 605 BC. He's a young royal. He's of the royal family. I don't know what his relationship is. He's probably between the ages of 12 and 20. And get that in your mind because when we look at, for example, what the passage is going to be next week, which is all of chapter 1, I want you to imagine a middle schooler <laughs> facing the kind of challenges that Daniel is going to face and his three friends who are his peers, his fellow, his middle school buds. His physical and his mental abilities make him highly suitable as a candidate for service in the court. And so in a way that actually mirrors Joseph, you remember Joseph in Pharaoh's court? Here is a young man who is actually gifted with the ability to understand dreams and visions. That's who Daniel is. Daniel is the author of the book that bears his name. For example, in Daniel 8.1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Belteshazzar, the king, uh, the, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So Daniel is saying, you know, I'm the one who is the one to whom the visions showed, you know, the same one who talked about it in a previous chapter. Some people say, well, how come he uses the third person? You know, he, he talks about the Daniel or Daniel. And I would just say, you just need to come to our home and you would understand it. I often say to Rochelle, Jim's going to work now. And, or sometimes I say, the gym is going to work now. And she says, well, how does the gym feel about that? You know, and stuff like that. So anyway, apparently Daniel and I would get along just fine because he used this third person where he says, the Daniel or Daniel and uses the third person. That doesn't mean he didn't write it. That actually was a literary convention of the time. And that's part of what Daniel did. And we have, for example, in chapter 8, 1, this reference, self-reference, in which we know this is Daniel saying, I wrote this book. Now, although Daniel nowhere refers to himself as a prophet, Jesus does, and he actually ascribes the content of the book to Daniel. So in Matthew 24, 15, we read this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. I'm going to talk some more about what that is. We're going to dig deep into that in a few, well, a number of weeks when we get there. But what you do see in this passage is Jesus is actually saying, when you see something that Daniel the prophet told you about pay attention and you're going to have to do certain things based on seeing that well that's Jesus way of saying Daniel wrote this and Daniel's a prophet and oh by the way 
He's a prophet who has some things to say to you. In fact, as you'll see later, Matthew and Mark, when they quote Jesus, they actually add this phrase, let the reader understand. Implication. Daniel is for us who are reading Matthew and Mark. There's something we need to know. Recognize and act accordingly. What else do we know about this guy, Daniel? About the Daniel? He was ranked by God as someone who has standing before himself similar to Noah and Job. Listen to this passage. This is Ezekiel 14, 14. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. In other words, everybody stands on their own spiritual two feet, but what God did when he told this or gave this message to Ezekiel, he's saying, pick your top three. And he ranks Daniel, and God is the one doing the talking in Ezekiel, who, by the way, is also living in Babylon at the time. He's a contemporary. And he says, Daniel is right up there with Noah, and he's right up there with Job. In other words, that's God's way of saying, this guy's no schmuck. He's a good guy. I find it quite fascinating, by the way, and you're going to understand this more as we go along, that the two people that God picked to compare Daniel to, both of whom are models of prevailing faith. Noah stood alone in a world that had run amok. Job was one who stayed true when everything came unglued. And he says of Daniel, Daniel is a Noah. Daniel is a Job. Sounds like the kind of guy we ought to pay attention to, right? He's also viewed by God as a paragon of wisdom. In Ezekiel 28.3, a statement is made about him that says, uh, you know, this is the kind of guy who is the example of true wisdom. He's interestingly named in the book of Hebrews without his name showing up. In Hebrews 11, 33 and 34, it says, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. That's a reference to Daniel. And then it says, quench the power of fire. That's his three friends. <laughs> They're listed in the hall of faith. In other words, you want to see what faith looks like? Prevailing faith looks like? Look no further than the guy in the lion's den and the three walking in the furnace. Here's the bottom line. Jesus, in Matthew, God, in Ezekiel, others, like the book of Hebrews, affirm Daniel is one remarkable man. And we can learn much from him. Daniel illustrates and instructs us how to serve God as a stranger in a world that is opposed to God because that's what's happening to Daniel. In 605, he is taken, as far as we know, from family, from home, from everything familiar and plopped in a place that does not honor God. Even enrolled in a school, and we'll talk about this next week, that has false gods at the center of the curriculum. How do you survive in that? And this is a middle schooler. I want to learn. 
from Daniel. Don't you? In the book that he wrote, in the first six chapters, we get to follow him around at key moments as he shows us a bit of how he did it. Now, how is the book structured? Well, chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 are narrative. They're actually giving us a chronological sequence of events in, in the life of Daniel. Chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic, and they're cyclical. What I mean by that is that uh, chapter 7 says, here, let me give you a, a, a look at some future events. Then chapter 8, let me look at some more aspects of those future events. Let's come back to chapter 9. I'm going to take a peek at a certain piece of that. Chapter 10 and 11, we're going to look at it some more. So you keep coming back to, to some events or a prophetic perspective that rounds out our understanding of things predicted. Uh, the delivery dates of chapters 7 through 12, these visions, you can actually connect them to the narrative part, chapters 1 through 6. You can actually see, oh, when this was happening in chapter 2, that prompted Daniel to say, could you please give me some more information? And God comes through with that. Uh, it's very interesting. A chiasm is a thing in which you actually have the first element and the last element matched together. And there's a chiasm at work in the chapter content of Daniel. Uh, chapters 2 and 7 present the progression of kingdoms. In other words, here's where history is going. Then chapters 3 and 6 talk about divine deliverance. And chapters 4 and 5 say God is going to hold to account the nations. So it's kind of like if I put it all together, this chiasm sounds like this. Here's where history's going. But don't worry, God's people will be delivered, but those who defy God will be judged. I'm going to say it again. Those who defy God will be judged, but you will be delivered. Here's where history is going. So that's what we're going to discover as we go along. Now, a little bit more detail. Chapter 7 is going to tell us about the four beasts before the kingdom. And I'm going to give you some, some gym percentages here. 75% of that prophecy has already been fulfilled in history, which means 25% of it is yet to come. In chapter 8, we're going to look at the ram and the goat. 100% of that has been fulfilled in history. In chapter 9, we're going to look at 69 weeks to the Messiah. 98% of that is all history. We only have 2% yet to go. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, the countdown to Antiochus, it's actually we're going to count down to a certain person, go event by event, and then we're going to leapfrog into the future. And 75% of that is all history. 25% of that is yet to come. What are some of the themes in the book of Daniel? Well, here I'm going to give you five. These keep showing up over and over. The fortunes of kings and of men are subject to God. It's a reinforcement of what Paul said in Corinthians. He says, it is a small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. The one who examines me is the Lord. We are accountable to the Lord. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter what others think. It matters what God thinks. And it doesn't even matter what I think, which is where Nebuchadnezzar 
ran afoul when he looked at everything he had created and said, man, this, I'm amazing. The number two theme is prayer is the resort of prevailing saints. Imagine you've just been taken as a middle schooler and thrown into a completely foreign world. How are you going to flourish? God's people flourish because they are praying people. Third thing you're going to see is that God's redemptive timetable is unassailable. God is going to accomplish his purpose regardless of what men do. Fourth thing you're going to see is that grace works in concert with consequences to deepen devotion to God. God is good, but sometimes out of his goodness, he allows us to encounter consequences that are designed to serve a good purpose. And then I want to show you this one. I want to zero in on this fifth theme that comes out a little bit more closely. In Psalm 137, 1 through 4, we read this. This was actually a psalm that was composed 20 years after Daniel was taken to Babylon. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 and there was a remnant of a, about 40,000 who were taken to Babylon. And here's their psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormented, tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And I believe that's our question. This is not my home. It is not your home. John 17, 16 says, they are, and Jesus was praying for his disciples and for us. He says, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for those who believe through the word. He's praying this for you. He says, you, and I'm going to substitute the you, you are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. We don't belong here. This is not our home. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel is going to describe for us the man who lives for God in a world to which he doesn't belong, and in fact, a world that is hostile to his belief. And his account is going to provide us insight into how to do it. Further, the book of Daniel provides both verifiable, that's past prophecy, and future prophecy of things that are yet to be faced by God's people so that we can be ready. That's a timely word. Now, some people would say, especially when they look at the prophecies in Daniel chapter 10 and 11, I mean, when I show it to you, it's going to blow your mind as he, Daniel, shows us event by event by event. It's almost 50 of them. And you can go check, 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 check. Perfectly accomplishes perfectly works out exactly what was predicted. And there are those who would say, there is no way that could be done. I mean, the only possible way Daniel's book could do that is if it was written in 165 B.C. 
Now, sometime we may have a Q&A session, not in the morning service, but at another time where I can get into all the detail you want to get into, including the plaster of Babylon, but we won't go there. I will just tell you two things. So uh, there are two scraps that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community, and two of those scraps are from the book of Daniel. And they are 2nd century B.C. scraps. And Qumran, by the way, is a whole long distance away from Babylon, 600 miles away. So how in the world could copies of Daniel be found that obviously reflect something that was much older if, in fact, Daniel was written in 165 B.C.? Doesn't make sense. Now, if you didn't follow that one, that's okay. This is real simple. Jesus says Daniel wrote the book, Matthew 24, 15. So Daniel wrote the book. <laughs> All right, one last thing I want to do is just talk about, uh, about application. Uh, how do you, uh, I made a Freudian slip, I used the word eschatology, because we're going to talk about that too. What's eschatology, Jim? Eschatology, which is eschatos and logos, refers to the doctrine of last things. And the Bible tells us about last things. Now, there are differing views on eschatological matters. And I want you to know what some of these views are, and I'm going to tell you which one I am using, because it is going to affect what happens, especially in the prophetic section of the book. Now, Please understand that even though there are differing views on eschatology, that does not mean that someone who disagrees with me is not saved. Uh, these are simply areas where good, honest students of the Bible uh, come up with different conclusions about things that are not in the biblical essentials category. Basically, these views are attempts to understand what the Bible says about the future, which does matter. In fact, Jesus wants us to understand the future, but not everybody is all on the same page. So let me tell you about three views, all right? First view is the view of the amillennialist. He believes that Christ's resurrection inaugurated his kingdom and marked his victory over Satan and the curse. In other words, the kingdom is... Uh, at least in a sense, is now. A post-millennialist believes that the millennium is an era marked by the gradual increase of the gospel such that the majority of the world is converted to Christ. In other words, that's kind of a, it's going to keep going and getting better and better and better until all the world embraces Jesus Christ and then he will return. A premillennialist believes that Christ will return to establish a literal 1,000-year earthly kingdom, which will be preceded by a period of intense tribulation. And the eschatological view that someone takes is going to affect how they approach the prophetic passages in the book of Daniel. Here, watch this. Here is a graphic representation of these three eschatological views. First, let's identify the facts about which there is no dispute. Here, watch fact this. number one, <laughs> Jesus was crucified. All right, I'm not hearing the audio, so... Fact number two, sometime in the future, all who know Jesus as Savior will enter into eternity with him. Fact number three, 
We are living in the time between the two. Three different eschatological views grapple with what happens between the cross and eternity. Amillennialism teaches that when Jesus arose from the grave, he established his kingdom. At some future date, Jesus will return and usher us into eternity. All who know Jesus are living in the kingdom now and enjoy the benefits of its presence by right of their association with its king, Jesus. Postmillennialism is similar to amillennialism, but it differs in this. It maintains that the kingdom is in the process of being established in the present age. It began when Jesus ascended into heaven and has been steadily growing and expanding ever since. Eventually, the entire world will embrace Jesus as their king, at which time Jesus will return and usher us into eternity. All who know Jesus are part of this growing kingdom now. Premillennialism teaches that we're currently living in the church age in which Jesus is calling out a people for his name. At some point in the future, the entire world will enter into a time of intense judgment called the tribulation, which will conclude with the return of Jesus. When he returns, Jesus will establish his earthly 1,000-year kingdom, and at the end of this 1,000 years, Jesus will usher the saints into eternity. Whichever view one takes influences how one interprets Daniel. For the premillennialist, there are two implications. First, the kingdom prophecies in Daniel connect to a future earthly kingdom that will be established by Jesus at his second coming. Second, many prophecies from Daniel describe events leading up to the establishment of this kingdom. You can see where we are now, somewhere in the church age. Are we close to the tribulation and Jesus' return? Hard to say. But know this, some of Daniel's prophecies clearly describe what is going to happen in the future. We can learn from him what to expect and prepare now to overcome the challenges of living in a spiritually hostile environment. Daniel can actually help us today. My approach to Daniel is going to be informed by a premillennial eschatology. In other words, a future, earthly, 1,000-year kingdom with Jesus as king is coming, and it will begin when Jesus returns to our world to conclude a time of unprecedented trial. There are other views, and I am not diminishing the earnestness of students of other views, but I wanted to be upfront with you about where I'm coming from as we work through this. Jesus teaches that it is critical to make a vital Daniel connection, and readers need to understand. I read this verse earlier, but I'll do it again with a little bit more added. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, get this, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Basically, what Jesus is saying is there's some aspects to the book of Daniel that at the time that the books of Matthew and Mark were written hadn't been accomplished. You need to pay attention because when you see, here's what Daniel described and here's what you're seeing in history. When those line up, a certain course of action needs to be taken and you need to be ready. 
To what is Jesus referring? What is this abomination of desolation? And uh, he's actually quoting from uh, Daniel 11:31, which reads this. Forces from him will arise, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, an ancient ruler who is actually a prefigurement of a future world ruler. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. That's what Jesus is saying. It hasn't happened yet at the time of Jesus. It hasn't happened yet at the time of the writings of Matthew and Mark. It's still future. The very next verse in that passage also tells us something. It says about this future leader who's going to set this up. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Now listen to this statement. Hang on to it. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Whatever this is, and we're going to unpack some more that will help us understand what it is, but whatever this is, those who know their God will display strength and take action. Well, now, who's a good guy to think of who was doing that? Ding, 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 ding. Daniel. Good answer. Our goal is to become a people who know God so well that we effectively live for him in a hostile world. We can become, we must become like Daniel. Now, I have a book here. It's, uh, we use this with our grandkids. It says, uh, What Should Danny Do? And some of you are familiar with this book. Um, our middle son actually had this book, but he had to get rid of it for reasons I'll tell you in a minute. Basically, this book describes a scenario, and then it says, what should Danny do? And there's a good choice and a bad choice. And if you get the bad choice, you go to page 43, and the good choice, you go to page 26. And basically, you're deciding you know, how this story is going to play out. Now, Alex got rid of this book because his kids, for the entertainment value, were consistently choosing the poor choices. <laughs> we get to actually do something that is really good which is at each chapter we're going to ask the question what does Daniel do or what do Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do so that we can learn from their example and be people who are going to be prepared because those who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel was a man who was living in a culture that was hostile to faith in Jesus Christ. We're walking into a culture, it seems, short of a third great awakening, where that is going to be the same, which is why I desperately want us to understand what would Daniel do so that we can be Daniels and Danielles in a time of hostility toward God? So what I would like to do is close in prayer. And I am going to make a prayer request. But if this is your prayer request, I want you to also, in your heart, say the same thing to the Lord, which is, God, 
over the next however many weeks, would you please show me how to become more a Daniel who prevails in a hostile world? Okay? Let's pray. Father, first off, we want to thank you for providing the book of Daniel. Ultimately, you are the one who made it possible. And we want to read this book as if our lives depend on it because that is true of your word. Our lives do depend on it. Father, we want to be those who know their God, who display strength, who take action. We want to be a people who understand the times and are prepared to live all in for you when it's costly to do so. And so we are pleading with you right now, show us what we need to see Teach us what we need to hear that we might be like Daniel and flourish in our faith and trust in you when we live in a world that is hostile to that belief. That is what we aspire to with all our hearts. But we're praying because we're pleading for your help to help us become that. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.